same handout that we've had for five weeks. I know, right? Um, but as always, yeah, you, well, once we do the prayer requests, do this. Otherwise, it'll distract people. I'll be reading the handout. Prayer requests or praises. As always, please continue to pray for Mariana and Jim Childs. I have no real update, um, but I know that the pain and the discomfort is getting worse, and it will likely continue to get worse as the cancer grows and progresses. Um, any other prayer requests or praises? What's your dad's name? Mark. 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 I'm guessing his last name's not Janky, so Schultz. That'd be a real coincidence, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Schultz. It's his knee. Okay. Sure. Other. Uh, yes, Elsa. Pray, the Psalms say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? So, sure, let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He did get married, which, depending on whether you're more closely affiliated with him or Bridget, is a praise or a prayer request. Um, I think I come down decidedly on the praise side, but yeah, there might be, anyway. Yes. Yes. Zach, two weeks before Zach was ready to leave, he's like, do you know any places I can rent? <laughs> but God is merciful. God is merciful. He found a place, nice place. Then I gave him the advice, have my wife go over. Because like, he didn't have, what didn't he have? He had some stuff, but what didn't he have? Shower curtain, towels. You can just imagine, because they're driving a U-Haul back. They're driving back. So like, you know. That means you couldn't take a shower until you unpack the entire thing and find the box with the towels. So Serena's like, um, get some towels. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So God is gracious. God is merciful. Be praying for Bridget. Indeed. Um, no, but they put some photos up on Facebook. What, when, are they, when are they returning? Like, what, two, three weeks? Because they're going on vacation to Mexico, and then they're driving back. So I'm guessing a good two weeks. Okay, two weeks. Zach and Bridget. Okay. Other prayer requests or praises? Nice. Nice. Johan and Natalie are engaged, and they closed. I, I, I can't announce you closed on a house, plural, without also announcing the engagement. Fair enough? Okay. Um, they are engaged. And uh, they closed on a house. Yay! They've been engaged, but they're, they're private people. They're probably not liking me even saying this. So, so. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. Um, that's a good praise. What else? Anything else? In this, yes! Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Amy Moore was telling me that when she first was reading Facebook photos before they moved from Hawaii, they'd see it's like 40, 50 degrees out. Like, what are they doing outside? And we're barbecuing. And then she's like, now it's like, we got to do something outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spring. Okay, anything else? Yes. Yay. Yeah. Okay. The Phillipses are on their way back here. Very good. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of people um, traveling back, and James and Zach, not Zach, James and Adam and Willoughby. Are they doing the 24 hour haul back? Oh, they did a nonstop 24 hour drive there. They're in Ohio right now. That's good for them. Okay. Just pray that they get back safely. I gave them a bunch of energy drinks that I had. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
There are. Allison's already had to go to the hospital once to get, um, to get hydrated and to get hooked up to an IV because she's, Allison, here's the, here's the thing, I was just telling Kinzenbaugh this. She's having a better pregnancy than last time and she's still having horrendous morning sickness. I mean, you could probably give better account. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, we, we are definitely going through a baby boom in the church. There's a lot of people who've had babies, who are having babies. So, yeah, praying, rejoicing for the gift of the children and praying for the sustenance of the mothers um, as they... Uh, God continues to knit and weave them together. Did anyone here get a chance to see that movie Dropbox, by the way? It's, it's out of the theaters now, but I, I went on Tuesday night, and there are a number of people from this church there. Um, I, I went with the Brewers, and the Palmquists were there, and Wendell and Patty were there, and Dean, Le, Dean and Debbie LeVang were there, and uh, the Cowans were there. Anyway, if you get a chance, check out Dropbox. It was really, really good, and it wasn't as brutal as I thought it would be. I, it's, it's a movie about children's, children abandoned on the streets in South Korea, Seoul, South Korea, and a pastor who basically has adopted 15 special needs kids and has put a Dropbox in the wall of his church. But he's like 27. No, no, he's 50-something. He's oh. No, he's an old guy. I mean, and he's... What? not the fi- No, no, I was going to say, because <laughs> he's in poor health. He looks old because he's in poor health. As a man just about to step into 40, I'm not going to call 57 old. No. Um, my estimation of what's old is moving. Um, so, no, but it, it was really encouraging, and it, I was ready for it to be as brutal as like a Schindler's List or something. It was actually really encouraging and good. It's out of, it was only at three days at Jordan Creek, but if you get a chance, it's, it's really well worth watching. And the cool thing is the filmmaker, the guy, the guy who made the documentary, got converted while making it. And he gave his testimony at the end, and he's like, I was originally trying to basically get the Cannes Film Festival, and he's like, that's why I did this. And uh, would you, did you guys enjoy it? You thought it was good? Yeah. Okay, that's about as much as I'm going to get out of Dean this morning, just a nod. Okay. All right. Anything else? Is Zach a part of your team? <laughs> okay, I'll pray for your, your team and your presentation. Uh, Sarah's got an hour-long presentation for school, and her team doesn't think meet, meeting together to prep for it is an important factor in said presentation. Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, come before you and just lift up our prayer request to you. And Lord, we just rejoice for the... Uh, children that you've given, the families in this church, and just pray, Lord, for the mothers as they go through um, pregnancy. We know that Allison in particular, this is hard, very, probably discouraging, and very unpleasant. We just pray that you would um, give sustaining grace so that she and others could, could rejoice even through a suffering. We do pray that you would take that suffering away, that you would <coughs> um, cause her to not be so nauseous. And Lord, we pray for these children that you would continue to knit them together wonderfully in the womb. And ultimately, Lord, we pray even more than their wholeness and their health is that you would, you would bring these children to know and to love you and your son. Lord, we rejoice in the um, return of some of our snowbirds. And we just pray for travel safety for them, for the Phillipses and the others who are coming back. We think of uh, Zach and, and James and Ryan and, and all those coming back from the wedding and Zach and... Bridget, just pray that you would give them, um, keep them safe. It's for our joy. We want to, we want to see them again. We want to reestablish our fellowship face to face, so that our joy would be complete. And Lord, we just pray for Zach and Bridget. We thank you that you, they were married, and we just pray that you would help them to continue to build um, their marriage on on truth and on the rock of Christ for your glory. Lord, um, we just rejoice that spring seems to be here, and even if it's just a taste, we rejoice in that. And Lord, as we, as we think of your judgment and your plan over history, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for peace in the Middle East. Pray that you would, um, that you would even now, speak peace to the nations. We know that that won't fully happen until you return. But even now, Lord, we pray that you would restrain evil in the world, that you would protect your people, and where your people are suffering, that you would cause them to suffer well and to die well, um, if need be. 
But Lord, we, we do pray for peace, for the restraining of evil, and that, that you would use human governments to, to bear the sword for righteousness and, and to, to punish the evildoer. Lord, we think of Mark Schultz and his, his this pain and discomfort he's in from his knee, and Lord, even though we don't know him, um, he is the father of someone dear to us, and so we pray for him that you would give grace, um, grace for him to endure the discomfort well, not grumbling, and his request that, that that discomfort would go away. And Lord, we think of those who are sick in our body, and particularly Mariana and Childs and Jim come to mind. I think of Jeb Brewer. Uh, I know there are many who are suffering and sick. And Lord, we just pray again that you would give them the grace to suffer well and, and if need be, to die well. And, and our request is more time with them, that you would heal their bodies, that for our joy, for the good of your church, um, you, would, you would give that grace. But most important, we pray that their faith would not waver, that they would not um, shrink back in unbelief, that their, their joy and their confidence in you would only grow as they approach meeting you. Lord God, we uh, lift all these things up to you and, and many other unsaid requests. And we think of Sarah and her presentation and just the difficulty of working with uncooperative teammates on projects. Just help her to not to be anxious, not to grumble, but to do her work, not to please the teachers, but to please you. Um, and that she, that she would be able to stand or fall by your pleasure in her faithfulness in this work. And Lord, we lift up all the other things that you know that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a new handout. Now, oh, where, where are you when I need you? Do you guys want to split this, JP? Okay. Well, I hand this out. Any questions from this morning? Any holdovers from Zechariah 9? One C is, where are my notes? I'm trying to find my, I need to see a copy of it. Done openly, openly, sorry. If you put blanks, you should probably say it two or three times to give people a chance to get them. Any other qu- Yes. And what does 3A say? Of the Philistines. Chief Philistine cities. Jonah. Say, give me what's there. My notes are in my... Um, watch over Israel. The Lord will dwell with Israel. He will guard around Israel and he will watch over Israel. Israel. Is speculation then that when that Alexander said in their Lutheran temple there, is it the speculation that the high priest had showed him a copy of Daniel's scripture? There's all sorts of spe- the problem is it's 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 by the time Josephus is writing, I mean I trust that Josephus is accurately reporting what he's heard. But you can see how quickly legend grows up. There's varying accounts. That's, possi- that's po- possibly part of it. Um, Alexander was a polytheist, so whereas he wasn't, from what you can tell, a, a worshiper, a true worshiper of Yahweh, he recognized Yahweh as a god with power. And in the account I read in Josephus, it, he had a dream that matched up with the dream. He, basically, he saw a dream of some priest wearing white, and God told the high priest, um, Jadua, or Jedidah, some weird pronunciation, to wear all white and go out and meet him. And when he sees him, all of his generals are like, what are you doing? And Alexander goes in and offers sacrifice. And then there's, did he, when he went in, did they show him Daniel? It's possible. All of that's possible. Um, we just can't really be certain. But that's certainly part of the legend of it. Yes, Greg. 333 B.C. 330, it should be, that should be in the notes. I mean, 332, 333, it, it took place right, right around then. Um, we know when Tyre fell, we know when Egypt fell, and we can sort of piece together the timeline of getting from down. Um, 
But no, the fall of Tyre was remarkable. Oh yeah, I almost, I almost, I really at the beginning of the week almost did like the slideshow thing, and then thought no. But if you just, if you Google siege of Tyre, you can see modern day Tyre, and it's just a peninsula. I mean. Well, who's, that, who's the reporter that was there? Um, Brad, Brad, Brad Williams was there. Um, and, uh, sorry. What? Okay. <laughs> okay, moving, moving on. Moving on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Why... Now, what we're at is we've been discussing this whole issue of what does the gospel call upon us to do, and the reason why I'm belaboring this point is I, I think it's, A, a very important point, and, B, something that rather than sort of hammering once, I want to move slowly, take questions, but I'm now going to develop reasons why I believe um, repentance from sin is a necessary condition for salvation. Um, but I want to offer a, a, a caveat up front, a qualification up front. As I've tried talking with some people, and I know there are some who've wrestled with this and are wrestling with it, I want to be clear that whereas I believe repentance is necessary, I do not believe um, that in every instance there's going to be a decisive moment of self-aware repentance. The Spirit, Jesus says, his ministry is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so for some people, I do believe there is probably a decisive moment. That would be my case. For others, um, I think they could have experiences where their sin begins to be less and less enjoyable, much like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. They find less and less joy, and they become those people over time who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Show me something to live for. Show me something worth living and dying for. Um, the Philippian jailer seems to be like that. Here's somebody who's at the end of himself. He's about to kill himself. Um, so in saying that the gospel requires repentance and faith for salvation. I'm not saying there has to be this decisive once for all, bang, write it in your Bible. It's more the case, you cannot, and this is what I'll argue, you cannot come to Christ savingly while you are clutching and treasuring and holding on to your sin. That, that's really the point. Um, if your functional God is yourself, guess who isn't? But that, that's, I wanna, does that clarification help at all on what I'm trying to argue? I'm mainly resisting the notion that somebody who treasures and loves their sin <coughs> gladly gives themselves to it, has no desire to be freed from it. I mean, it would be the person who says, I want to be saved from the penalty of my sin, but I want to keep, I love drinking and I love my adultery and I love my lawlessness. I love it. I just don't want to get punished for it. That that is incompatible with saving faith. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. That's what I'm arguing. Let's, let's get into it. Four reasons today. I got three others, but we'll look at four. We'll try to... Yes, Greg. Okay. No. I, I mean, my drunkenness. I love my drunkenness. No, I do not mean to suggest that all drinking is sin. Otherwise, we've got a problem with John 2. Because um, I'm telling you, oinos does not mean grape juice. Yeah, yeah, indeed. No. Thank you, Greg, lest anyone, and on the tape, unless anyone think, no, no. Um, so, first reason, the nature of sin. Sin, according to Romans one twenty one, and would someone read Romans one twenty one in, in Paul's indictment against man, why we need saving, he sums up at the root of sin, Romans one twenty one is... You got it, Zeb? Yeah, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The very nature of sin is a refusal to honor or thank God. A refusal. That's why they became fools. That's where everything else comes from. If you keep reading Romans 1. So what is sin at its essence? A refusal to honor or thank God. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. And so the second point, sin is to, is to endeavor or attempt to live life apart from God's rule. It's a refusal to recognize God as God, as lawgiver. 
you have no law. I don't recognize your claim over my allegiance. I don't recognize your, it's lawlessness. This law doesn't apply to me. I'm outside the law. That's at the heart of sin, right? And so next part three, the next third point, I'll tie it all together in my little box. Um, and this is the promise of the serpent to Eve. When you want to get at your heart of what really is at the heart of sin, it's a refusal to honor and thank God. It's, it's a refusal to recognize God's law. And it's attempting to live life apart from God. That's what the serpent promised Eve. You can come up alongside God as his fellow to be like God. Instead of the chain of command being, here's God, and he speaks to you, and you trust and believe him and obey, you can know for yourself, come out autonomously alongside of God. That, that's, that's at the heart the root and the essence of sin. So if that's so, I would suggest you can't meaningfully speak of being reconciled to God while you still insist you're his equal, while you still insist he has no claim over you, while you still, you know, reconciliation demands our willingness to be his subjects. The whole problem started when we said, no, you won't be our God. No, you don't get to tell us what to do. No, we won't honor and thank you. No, you don't give us a law. Doesn't reconciliation demand now the two parties are back in their right relationship? But so if somebody says, I'm reconciled with God, but I don't recognize his right to tell me what to do, I'd say, No, you're not reconciled with God. You're not reconciled with God till you're willing to, to be your part in that relationship. And your part in that relationship is to be his creature, to be his subject, to, to, to be his. Does that make sense? Um, okay, that's my first point. So the very nature of sin, in my mind, is what is at the heart of sin is antithetical to the notion of you can't challenge God's right to rule. Sure, we'll struggle. Sure, we'll have a hard time with it. But if you've got somebody who says, yeah, I have no intention of giving up my adulterous affair, doesn't God call you to do that? Well, he may call me to do that, but I'm not going to obey. It seems that you've got a problem with God. Um, point two, the nature of Christ with a Christ. Romans 9, 5, and 10, 9 declare that Jesus is God and man. Now turn to Luke 6. Luke 6. Verse 46. Well, go back to verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Notice again the assumption of the connection. He's talking about trees. What he's really talking about is types of people, people who are his, people who love and worship his father, and people who don't. And there's a continuity between what you believe and what you do. Um, there's, a, there's a continuity between what you believe and what you do. So the tree is known by its fruit. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the Eve's evil treasure, his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So whatever you're thinking, whatever's going on in your heart, and that's where we're talking about repentance and faith taking place is in the heart, your actions are going are to flow out of that. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And what Jesus is clearly saying, I think, is you can say, Lord, Lord, but if you don't obey him, you don't believe he's the Lord. There's a disconnect. He just went on saying, I can tell what you believe by what you do. You're going to know the tree by its fruit. And here's a tree that bears not obeying Jesus' fruit. Do you think it really is a, is a, is a follower of Christ's tree? You can say, Lord, Lord. You can sing songs. You can, you can raise your hand. You can come forward in an altar. But if that doesn't cause you to obey him, don't think he's your Lord. And so my point is this. If we don't think that we ought to obey Christ, oh no, sorry, the point from Luke 6, if we believe that Jesus is God, we will obey him. Or to put it another way, my little box, if we do not think that we ought to obey Christ, then we really do not truly believe he's God. I mean, does that make sense? Like, I don't care who you think Jesus is. If you don't think he needs to be honored and obeyed, you don't think he's God, or you've got a different definition of God than I do. Yes, Seb? Just also going back to um, the previous section, 40, 43 through 45, uh, specifically in verse 45, it says the person of the good treasure of his heart. So it's like, what is, he, what is your what? treasure? Yeah, what's your treasure? That's the defining factor, right. which then goes on. Yep. And 
Right. Which is, this is all very similar. Turn over to, um, turn over to Matthew 7. This is one of two passages that God used um, in my conversion powerfully to terrify the living daylights out of me. Um, I, one of the other reasons why I belabor this point, and I think it's important, is I was headed for hell, believing I was a Christian, having many people assured me I was a Christian because I prayed a prayer, and because only a Christian would wonder whether they're a Christian. There's no verse that I know of that backs that up, but I heard that a lot when I'd start to question that. Do I really, am I really reconciled with God? Only a Christian would ever question whether they're a Christian. Um, and, and I had this intellectual knowledge. I went to a Christian school. My mom won the tug of war with my dad, who was a Catholic, and I went to a Christian elementary school. And as far back as I reached my mind, there a clear and accurate gospel content is. And yet, as I hit my teens and God let the leash out on my sin, it became clearer and clearer. I was a slave of unrighteousness. I loved my unrighteousness. I loved, I was a profligate. I was a drunk. I was immoral and not bothered by it, not troubled by it, not reading the Bible, not in fellowship with believers, not going to church. I remember being at a keg party outside of a UNH, at a frat at UNH, and I was outside and I imbibed so much I was throwing up. And I was, had a little cross around my neck that my sister had given me, and somebody saw it and said, are you a Christian? And I remember looking up with, you know, spittle, and I said, yeah, just a bad one. And in my mind, no, that was the category in my mind. And, um, and then the Spirit, as I said, begins to convict, and no one preaching to me. I just became more and more and more afraid of judgment. And so I began to question more and more, do I really have salvation? Do I really know the Lord? And that... And that's when I started asking people questions, and that's when people said, oh, well, and they'd catch on that I knew some of my Bible, because I, you know, I knew the Bible stories, and I could explain the gospel pretty clearly. And what I didn't have is, I think, faith in any meaningful sense. And so a bunch of well-meaning people, this is why I care, were, were ushering me on to hell. If the Spirit hadn't continued to prod me, I would have said, oh, I'm okay then. Um, and... Uh, I remember as I started reading my Bible, as I'm going to get to the bottom of this, I got to Matthew 7, and Matthew 7 just blew me up. In fact, I remember at the time, a good friend of mine who went to college with me, who lived at the time a block away from me, I, I was telling him my studies, and he was actually one of the guys telling me, like, look, it's faith, it's not work, so what are you worried about? You, you believe, you ask Jesus into your heart, you're all set. I'm like, dude, Chris, I don't, I don't know, man. And we get to Matthew 7. And we get to that same tree fruit language of verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then here's the passage that just stripped me bare. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is not here teaching work salvation. He's assuming what the Bible assumes, that where there is faith, there's obedience. So how can you prove someone's not a person of faith? They're not obeying. That's the argument here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I have a suspicion he has Judas in mind. Judas, by the power of the Spirit, cast out demons and performed miracles. And I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The proof that they had no relationship with Christ is the lives they lived. And there is going to be many people who are thinking they're headed for heaven, who think they're secure, who think they're safe, who in this life are at peace and are going to be terrified on the day of judgment. I don't think on the day of judgment they're lying when they act confused. I don't think this is a complicated deception on their part. I think they're shocked. I think that was exactly where I was headed to be. And I remember reading this and just going, whoa. And I remember going over to my friend Chris. And because, of course, my friend Chris at the time was saying, oh, you're making a big deal of this. And I said, Chris, who are, who are these people? What's their problem? And he goes, that's us. I said, that's not us. 
we're like half a mile behind them in the appeals line. These people were doing stuff. They're doing ministry, but they weren't doing his holiness. Which is, by the way, is another important thing to keep in mind. Don't mistake ministry for holiness. These people were doing stuff. They, this would be equivalent of they were teaching in Awana or they were helping out on, or they were ushers. What matters is, are you striving after Christ's likeness? That's the, that's the proof of genuine faith. Um, you can be involved in ministry, um, which is a good thing for people like me to remember. But it was just a scary passage to, to reveal there's this connection between what you believe and what you do. And you've heard me say this for eight years. We always live out our belief system. We always do. Sin is lived out on belief. In the moment that I sin, I don't believe God. In, in, in when I'm pursuing obedience, it's because I believe. And they're connected. And yet I, and I think many people have set up this system where I believe X, Y, Z, but I live ABC. No, if you live ABC, you believe ABC. Um, and, and passages like Luke 6 and Matthew 7, I think, make that point abundantly clear. And so I care about this because I don't want the line to get any bigger. I, I don't want the line getting any bigger. I don't want, if people are going to perish, I'd rather they know they're going to perish. Like, okay, you want to go to hell, go to hell with your eyes wide open. I couldn't think of a more terrifying experience than to think you're headed for heaven and hear him say, I never knew you. Um, so that's, that's why I care about this. Um, my experience doesn't make it true, but if you're wondering, why is this a big deal for Jeremy? That's why this is a big deal for Jeremy. Any questions on point one or two? I've been doing a lot of talking so far. Yes, Serena. God and man. I just sped through that because I assumed we, we, there's not going to be any selling. Wait a second, Jesus is God. I didn't think there'd be a, that'd be a hard sale. Um, any other questions so far? Just on the points we're covering. Yes, Elsa. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. You, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You cannot, all of our Righteous, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and the literal, let's see, we've got children here. It's like medical waste. That's the most tamest thing I can say. It, he's talking about the rags that, that absorb bodily discharges. That's our best deeds. Um, so garbage doesn't even come close. I mean, think as nasty as like, look what I've got for you, God. <laughs> and uh, that's our best deeds. Without faith, anything not done in faith is sin, Romans 14. Um, and so, no, unbelievers never do anything good. Unbelievers can do things consistent with God's law, so unbelievers can to varying degrees pervert or twist or, or, or warp what is right, but they can never do things that are pleasing to God because they can never do it for the right reason. When somebody helps out you know, a charity and then we find out they did it for a tax break, we're not impressed. God requires not only that what we do comports with his character and his law, but he also requires we do it for the right reason. And the right reason is his glory, for his, because you, out of love and fidelity to him. So there are plenty of people who do good things in a lowercase g sense. They're, they, 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 they have a conscience, and they're submitting to their conscience, but they're not submitting to their conscience because there's a holy and righteous God who deserves all honor. They're submitting to their conscience because they want to be able to just go to sleep tonight. And that isn't meritorious good. Um, now, a believer can do meritorious good. Uh, I, I firmly believe... None of us have ever loved God with all our heart, soul, and mind for more than five seconds at a time. So even now, I'd say that our best deeds are tainted with bad motives. So like, I've used this example before. I hope that my motives in teaching, um, I hope and believe that my motives in teaching and preaching in the church are to honor God, to, to serve his people. I know, I'm well aware there are other motives. Will they think I was smart? Will they, will they like it? Um, what type of feedback? And, and so even if you think of metal, there's, there's impurities in there as well. And so I just hope that on the day of judgment, according to Paul, my, my works are burned up. There'll be something that remains. I'm well aware there's a lot of hay and straw in there too. But at least as a believer, I can do things that will remain. I can build with gold and costly. This is the, the imagery of 1 Corinthians 3. So, so yeah, as a believer, we can now begin to obey and please God. Um, it, the irony is it's only after we're forgiven can we then begin to please God? It's not that we please God and let's get forgiven. We get forgiven, and then we can please God. Um, okay, any other questions up to this point? Okay. There should be, at the pace we're going, time for questions at the end. Um, 
Next is the consequence of a love for sin. Go to John 3. We looked at this last week, so I'll, I'll just cover this briefly. But this is, this is the concept here, is that there are things that lead to other things. There are consequences of things. If you love your sin, according to John 3, you will hate Christ and his righteousness. It says that clear as day, um, that a love of sin is what keeps people from Jesus. It is not the incredulity of the claims. See, a lot of times we want to think the problem with the gospel is it's kind of, a, it's kind of far-fetched. God became man in a backwater town in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and he died? That's pretty hard to believe. That's kind of incredible in the true sense of the word. It lacks credulity. And so then we just, we got, here's 37 reasons why Jesus rose from that. And that stuff's helpful. It encourages my faith. If we take the Bible seriously, that's not what keeps people away. It's a smokescreen that that's what keeps people away. Look at John 3, starting in verse 19. Let me get there. And before we get there, remember Romans 1. What are people doing? They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. See, people are not neutral when it comes to truth. The unbeliever wants us to believe, and we're tempted to believe, that our unbelieving friends the unbelieving world around us, they're really decent people, and sadly, they've not heard a credible case for Christianity, but they really want to believe what's true, and if only we could make a credible case and we could answer their objections, then these reasonable people who want to believe what's true, once they're shown the credulity and the veracity of Christianity, well, then surely they will believe. Romans 1 says they already know a ton of stuff about God, and they want to ignore it. What can be known about God is evident to them, for since the creation of the world's divine attributes have been plainly seen through what is made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, this is our verse from upper top, they did not honor him as God to give thanks to him. People are looking for truth in God like, the, like, the, like robbers are looking for the police. And, and so while you love sin, you're not looking for God. Look at John 3, 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Get that. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. My blank there is love of sin is what keeps us from coming to Christ. That's what that's what that verse says. Everyone, why don't they come to the light and be saved? Because they love the darkness, so they hate the light. And if your highest love and your highest treasure is your sin, you will find the righteousness of Christ abhorrent and ugly and unattractive and repellent and like a cockroach screaming for the corner. You're going you're gonna to run from him. Um, unless somebody presents a Christ who you can treasure your sin and have Jesus. And that's, again, the problem is... You know, we don't want to make the gospel harder to believe than it needs to be, but we also, God isn't looking for PR people to dress up the gospel and make it, you know, easier to accept. And that's what we get. You see it on TV, you know, God has a good plan for your life. God wants to make you prosper. That, those are all half-truths. There's nothing offensive in that. God has fixed the problem that you've been rebelling all your life against him, and he wants to be at peace. You up for that? <laughs> that's another way of describing the gospel. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm... I kind of like being my own boss, and I kind of like doing my own thing. I'm not so sure I want peace with God if that's what it means. Let's go on to 2 Thessalonians 2. Eleven and twelve. No, ten, ten through twelve. Should be ten through twelve. This is talking about the coming of the Antichrist, the lawless one. I guess to pick up, to start the sentence from the beginning, you've got to start in verse 9, I guess. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So how do you get saved? One biblical way, you've got to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but 
had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see how that text assumes that antithesis? If you love this, you'll hate that. You won't like the truth. Why? Because you took pleasure in your sin. You love your sin. The darkness is what you love, therefore you don't like light. That make sense? This is the uniform testimony of Scripture. Or to put it plainly, Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. He'll love the one and hate the other. Yes? What you don't love. Yeah, yeah, this gets back to the message on original sin and everything from back in December. This is, this is part of the problem is, and, and let, me, let me pause and broaden this a little further. The, it, it's ironic that most, the theology, I gotta sit on the bench, the theology that generally rejects the notion that repentance from sin is a necessary requirement for salvation usually accompanies a theology that rejects the sovereignty of God over salvation. Um, because the logic is this. They believe everybody has within them the power to believe. It's this, remember we got back to the discussion about are we dead in our sins or are we dying in our sins? Do you got one last gasp of life in you? you know, it's the picture of, is this salvation? Jesus is reaching out his arm and you're drowning and you reach up and you just barely manage to take hold of his hand. Or is the picture of salvation, you're dead 20 leagues down and he raises you and gives you life, brings you to life. I think it's the second. But if you think people of this little weak gasp of life in them, then you'll say things like, my professors at Word of Life, how can an unbeliever repent? And I said, fair enough, how can an unbeliever believe? How can an unregenerate person believe? And so generally speaking, it's, it's the Arminian, the, the free will view that resists the notion of repentance to the gospel because they want this to be something everyone can do and everyone has the power to do. Because I believe faith is a gift from God, and I also believe the Bible teaches repentance is a gift from God, for me there's no problem. God's going to grant repentance and faith. Or he's not. Um, and if he grants it, guess what? You'll repent and believe and just like the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts um, 11 rejoiced, and when they heard the account of Peter about Cornelius's conversion, therefore God has granted or gifted repentance to the Gentiles also that leads to life. Or my, one of my favorite passages in 2 Timothy um, 2.24, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. So it, it, to me, that's not a problem. God grants it's a gift. It's not a work. It's something God grants. The Bible repeatedly recognizes repentance as a gift of God, a grace that God pours out. So um, anyway, that's, that's, that's an aside there. Um, so... And truth. Sin and truth. Well, that's the antithesis there is they refuse to love the truth. They perish because they took pleasure in sin. And again, the assumption is you can have one or you can have the other. What do you want? And we, we run the risk of deceiving people if we present a gospel that you can have both. That's why in, my, that's why in that example from the other sheet, the guy's like, if I, can, I, can I have Jesus and hold on to my adultery? Can I, can I do that? I mean, it's rare that you're going to get someone that articulate, but let's say somebody... But like I said, my buddy... When I got saved, my buddy, who was in the rock band I was in, and he and I would go out drinking and stuff, he, he understood. And he, he said, yeah, I'll become a Christian after two or three more years of partying and drinking. Because he understood he couldn't hold on to both, cling on to both, um, cherish and treasure both. I mean, and you know, the guys that were to life would have been like, dude, don't worry about it. You can drink if you want to drink. I, in the back of my mind, they'd think, I don't think you'll want to once you get saved. But they would just say, oh, no, 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 all that matters is, do you think Jesus is who he says he is, and you want him to forgive you? Um, and, yeah. Okay. So then the next, the box there is we cannot come savingly to Christ while we still treasure our sin. If we love the darkness, we will hate Christ and his light. That makes sense? Okay. 
And then finally, a consequence for a love of Christ. I'm just going to build a two-part syllogism here. Part one, 1 Corinthians 6.22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So the first point in this argument is that a person without love for Christ is accursed. That's what, and accursed means damned. Anathema, anathema. So that's what, I'll, I'll read it to you just to make sure I quoted it correctly. But yeah, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 6, 22. John 14, 15, however, says what? If you want to read John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Part of what it means to love Jesus is to want to please him, to want to obey him. So, the final box and the final part of this sheet, giving us 10 minutes for Q&A, is no one can come to Christ who does not love him, and if we love him, we will desire to keep his commandments. Part of a love for Christ is a desire to be like him. I, I want to be like him. Um, so anyway, those, those are four reasons why I think, um, I tried to look at it textually the last two weeks, now I'm trying to come at it, sort of helping understand why these two things don't fit together. Um, any questions? I'll open it up for questions now, general questions on this whole topic. Or, yes, Lois. Okay, it could be because I'm confusing. It could be my fault. Probably is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I came to recognize, well, there's two things. Um, it is conceivable. It is conceivable. I don't think so. It is conceivable that I really was a Christian. I really did come to Christ at an early age and that God allowed me to wallow in my sin for a decade. I doubt it. The reason I doubt it is when I look back at my childhood, there's no fruit of the Spirit. If there was evidences of the new birth, if there was a hunger for God's word, if there was a loving of God's people, if there was a pattern of confession of sin... All the things that 1 John in the New Testament says are the hallmarks of the new birth, the evidences of the new birth. Then I might say, wow, look at the grace of God. He let me go my own way for 10 years. But since there was none of that at the starting point, I think it makes far more biblical sense to say I got saved in the summer of 1999. Um, so, so is, Yes. Before, before I answer the question, would you recognize faith as a gift of God? Would you recognize faith as a gift of God? So I, it, to me, that's the same thing. It was, for me, I was, I was, what I loved was my own autonomy. I had plans for my life. And there were certain things in my life that I knew were wrong that I was willing to negotiate and give up. In fact, I tried bartering with God for a while. I remember once, in fact, I think it might even be because that person at UNH asked me that question. It bugged me. Um, I remember telling God, okay, I'll quit smoking pot, and I'll quit drinking, and I'll quit partying. Um, bless me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll give up this, this, and this. But I was clearly holding on to, I was going to be a rock star, and I was going to do my thing. And, I'm, and I had a fairly decent idea God didn't want me to be a rock star. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you got to understand, I loved the whole package. I mean, I loved the whole lifestyle, everything that went with it, the glory. I mean, I wanted people to praise me. I wanted to be up on of adoring people. It was a whole package. I was not just a musician who loved music. It was, it was the whole kit and caboodle, right? And, um, and I, I liked calling my own shots, and I didn't want to submit to anyone. And um, my parents sent me to military school because I didn't want to submit to anyone. And, and so I had sort of negotiated and bartered with God, and, and when, I, when I, um, the Spirit started convicting me, I honestly started praying these really pathetic prayers because as I was reading my Bible... I started realizing that's not me. And like you said, Jeremy, you can't love what you don't love. 
Um, I started praying prayers like, God, I don't want to obey you. Would you change my heart to make me want to obey you? I don't want to quit drinking. Would you give me a desire? I don't want to be righteous. I'm scared to death of you. You know, <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. But I, I recognize that that, the de- that, that, that that just qualifies me to be a demon, right? The demons tremble. Um, and um, somewhere in the late July, early August of 1999, my desires changed. And, and um, somewhere in there I got saved. I can't put my finger on the date. I, 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 for me, part of the problem was I was so afraid of deceiving myself again that I didn't want to, okay, I'm safe now. I was just trying to scramble up out of the pit. And so it really wasn't until about a month or two later looking back that I saw this radical change in my life and this hunger for God's word and this breaking off with sin. And, so, and I'm basically somewhere back there, God saved me. Somewhere back there, God brought me a life. Somewhere back there, the spirit empowered my living. Um, so it's hard for me to speak categorically. Um, but, but yeah, that was my experience. I know that's not everyone's experience. Um, if, if you talk to, to Renee Zimmerman, she, she had more of the, um, someone presented Jesus, and he was the loveliest thing she'd ever seen. And she just couldn't wait to have, I can have him? You know what I mean? Um, which is why I want to restate it like I did at the beginning. I'm, I'm primarily objecting to the notion that somebody can love their sin. And I actually find the notion of Jesus kind of offensive. But I'll take his pardon if he wants to give it to me. Sure, I'll, like, please forgive me, Jesus. Don't tell me what to do, but please forgive me. You know what I mean? That, that's what I'm mainly objecting to, this notion that, that you can believe A and go live your life for B. I don't know if I've answered your question or not. That, nope? I think so. Okay. God changed my heart. And even I'd say my desire for God to change my heart was God working on me. And that wasn't something I welled up my own goodness within me. That was, but, but even though it has to be God doing it, it doesn't change the fact that we call men to repentance and faith. We know they can't believe unless God gives them faith, and they can't repent unless God gives them repentance, but we call them to that. And to some degree, there's a reaping and sowing principle that's at work. Part of how, the, part of how God got me to, to, to let go of, of that was beginning to taste the, the, the unfulfillment in the things I was doing. I was already no longer enjoying getting drunk and partying as much as I used to. I was already beginning to reap what I was sowing, and it was already beginning to taste sour in my mouth. And so God uses those things. Um, he uses means to, to do that. It's not just like he zaps you with the repentance zap gun. You know. um, yeah. Other questions? Yes, Patty. Mm-hmm. Okay. A, it's, it's interesting with, with love for God versus love for man. Because normally when I speak of loving another person uh, who's a human, it usually comes in grace and redemptive categories. God doesn't need my grace. He doesn't need my service. I'm not trying to help him. You know what I mean? In, in any meaningful sense where he's better off because of my service. But mostly, if you ask me, what does it mean to love my wife? It means I desire her good to the glory of God above all things. You know, that's what it means normally to love. When I speak about loving God, um, I believe primarily it's, it's a treasuring, a valuing, and a desiring of God. Um, anyone want to work on that definition? Um, it's, it's to see him as he is and to delight and rejoice in that, to find joy in him. It's, it's, this is Piper's God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him type of language. Loving God is not, gee, I really want to help God out. It's being blown away by what you see and want, I want that. I, yeah, better is one day in your course than a thousand days elsewhere. It's hungering and thirsting for him, for that. That's loving God. It's delighting in and Love, in some sense, it's like loving God like you love chocolate sundaes. You just want it. You're attracted to it. That's how I would define a love of God. And it's clear that part of that is I want to please him. I want to be like him. And I, and I want to, to trust and believe him. Anyone want to work with a love of God definition different from that? 
it's just tricky when you talk about God because normally with people, I talk about, it's about service and it's about preferring and it's about putting them first. And, and there's truth to that in loving God, but, you know, I'm, yeah, that's, that's how I define a love for God. It's, um, okay, go to, go to 2 Corinthians 4. It's a good question, Patty. And we have one minute. We'll do this in one minute and we'll get out of here. Um, <laughs> you know better, don't you, Steve? Yeah. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, first few verses, um, verse 3. I did a message on this in our series on sin and sanctification, so I'll just do the fast treatment here. You can look it up online if you want to go further with it. But look at, here's another way of describing the difference between people who perish and people who don't, okay? So there's two types of people in the world. There are those who love sin and there are those who love truth. That's one way of dividing the world up. There's also two types of people here. Verse three, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. So now there's the people who, have, who are veiled to the gospel and people who don't. This is why I'm talking about what it means is the veil, when they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, it seems ugly, it seems distorted to them. And that's why they perish. So look at what that means. It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you look at Jesus and you say, here's my sin, here's Jesus, no thanks, I'll keep my sin. You didn't really see Jesus as he is. To see him as he is, is to delight in him. To see him as he is, is to, to treasure and prize and love him. And that, that's another way of, of describing the difference, is there are people who, when they look at Jesus, don't see that. They're blinded. The veil is over their face. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So the Bible is assuming that faith and a love of Christ are all coming together. So, like you, like you, the blinders get pulled off. Here's, here's my picture of God saving Remember, remember that Sunday where I had the my, that crystal thing and the lights were dark and we shone the light on it, lit the thing up. So here you're preaching the gospel to the world, and then be like, nah, nah. And then in some case, boom, the lights go on, the veil comes up, and you see, you see, and then you want, yes, I want that. And it's kind of like right now I'm on a juice fast, and and Sophie walked up to me and tried to hand me a donut hole, and I said, get behind, get behind me, Satan, and. Uh, <laughs> But when you, when you value something, when you want something, you respond to it. You can't help. Like Part of me was like, yes, I want to give me the donut hole. Um, and and, and that's, that's, it, it just comes out of you. And God gives that desire. Now, we really believe. We really turn and come to Christ. But God's the one who changes our hearts so that now we actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, yes, I do find that attractive. Now, yes, I do want that. Um, Oh, absolutely. We don't, we don't just well up. Love of God is not the last little penny we chip in to our salvation. Like God did 99.9999999% of it, and the last little piece I supply. Yes? Except, because people, I know we're over time, if you want to go, we'll go. I'll accept the Bible is clear that even though while we were elect from the foundations of the world, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were all formerly children of wrath. God's wrath abided over us. And so when we talk, what we're talking about is justification. What does it take for me to have my sins removed? That didn't happen in eternity past. That happened at this moment in time in your life because you came into this world with the wrath of God abiding over you as a child of wrath. And so there is a question, okay, what then is the condition for me to receive the righteousness of Christ and for God's wrath to be removed from me. And that's where I'm arguing the, the condition is repentance and faith, or a repentant faith, or however you want to say it. It's the next... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you ask, well, what's the condition for repentance and faith? Well, God's got to change your heart. So regeneration is the precondition for repentance and faith, which is the condition for justification. I'm, I'm using salvation specific okay, justification. Let's talk about justification. Let's talk about forgiveness. Regenerated. 
Okay. We'll start here next week because it's, it's over. We're out of time. God bless you all. Have a good day.